Hello and welcome to this special edition of the Scottish Parliament podcast in partnership with the Scottish AI Alliance. My name is Rob Littlejohn. I run Scotland's Futures Forum, which is the Scottish Parliament's think tank. Today, I'm joined by two special guests to discuss the impact of artificial intelligence on our lives, our parliament and our democracy. Um, I'll let them introduce themselves. Hi, um, I'm Eva Luger. I am Professor of Human Data Interaction at the University of Edinburgh and um, co-director of the BRAID programme, which is uh, Bridging Responsible AI Divides. And I'm Richard Leonard, a Labour member of the Scottish Parliament uh, for Central Scotland, and I'm the convener of the Parliament's Public Audit Committee. Well, thanks to you both for joining us today. So as I said, the subject of this podcast is artificial intelligence and democracy. Uh, we're recording this at a time when AI appears to be everywhere. Chat GPT is, is revolutionising the, um, the way we work with creating text and images. And Google has also released uh, tools recently. A German photographer recently won an international prize with an AI-generated image before admitting what he'd done and saying he wanted to start a debate. And perhaps most notably, one of the leading AI experts, Jeffrey Hinton, publicly stepped away from his work with Google, citing significant fears for our future. So this is clearly a hot topic. And in that context, let me start with Eva. What do we mean when we talk about artificial intelligence? How big an impact is it having and will it have on our lives? When we think about artificial intelligence, we often think about science fiction, so like the sentient supercomputer or the robot. But in reality, artificial intelligence isn't one thing. It's a, it's a range of methods and approaches um, and technologies that, that combine to mimic aspects of intelligence, not always human intelligence, intelligence broadly, although we have come to think about human intelligence as the metric. Um, generative language models like ChatGPT are one example, but there are lots of others. So like recommender systems, uh, facial recognition, navigation systems, voice assistants. And if you think about it, all the things that are on your smartphone. So it's with us already for most people all the time. We engage with it all the time. Um, in terms of future impact, I think um, pretty much all of the large tech companies focusing on AI innovation right now is sort of an arms race. And the UK government has taken a pro-innovation stance, which means that I think we're going to see quite a lot of um, developments of different types that are going to be surprising to us, but also that will advance um, AI technologies. And there's lots of cool stuff, and we all like to play with cool stuff. So um, people are engaging with this technology in ways that we haven't seen around AI necessarily in the past. Um, I think in terms of impact, it's going to depend on whether it's good or bad depends on how we regulate it, whether it's adopted, in what domain, the scale of that adoption, and how we, well we understand those systems that we're interacting with. So you've, everybody's heard about the idea of transparency, systems needing to be transparent so we can inspect them, so they can be accountable. I think that's going to be quite important from a user perspective, but also from a sort of a governance perspective and a regulation perspective. Um, yeah, I think is that answered your question? I can... Yeah, and I'd, I'd, I'd to follow up on that quickly, how different is this from other tools that we've seen, technological tools that we've seen developing, such as the internet and even further back, things like the printing press or mass televisual media? Yeah, I mean, I think, I, I suppose it's maybe not fair to compare it to the internet because that's such a paradigm shift, wasn't it? But um, changed the way that we did or worked and thought. And I I'm not sure that AI, you know, is in that wheelhouse just yet. It does have the potential. I mean, I think we... Um, the thing that we've, un we've not expected is 
the impact that this is going to have on areas like creative practice and knowledge work. It used to be, in fact, in 2016, there was um, several documents that came from think tanks in the um, UK government that sort of said, you know, the areas that are going to be safe from artificial intelligence and automation more broadly are going to be areas that are creative, that bring in human insight and wisdom. And, you know, fast forward to 2023, and that proved a bit of a stale prediction, didn't it? You know, I just think, oh, my goodness. So, um, we're terrible at predicting what's going to happen and what's not going to happen. But I think um, certainly those areas of creative practice where we're now seeing, you know, the work of artists being effectively scraped by these large models in order to produce what you might consider to be new art. But then the question, is it new? Um, what are the issues around copyright? And if you're a, an academic or even an artist producing stuff, what are the issues around sort of plagiarism and, you know, not being honest about how these things are developed? So I think there are already... Um, impacts that are very different to the kinds of things that we've seen with technology before. I mean, we go all the way back to the printing press if we're really going to talk about things that, that caused us to sort of stop in our tracks and, and think, oh my God, this is going to change the world. And it is easy to think that AI is going to be one of those things. And I think what will make the difference is how carefully we manage this process now. You're talking about the, the creativity. That was something that in the Futures Forum we, we explored looking at schools and, and it was always the thought that creativity was was, was the unique human um, quality that, that, that we would always be looking for. But as you say, it does does seem to be blurring the lines um, with the, the recent developments. I mean, Richard, obviously this is a, a technology that is, is having a, a lot of impacts in different ways. In your role as an elected member, you come into contact with lots of different people in lots of different situations. Are you seeing AI have an impact yet, or is it more yourself as a citizen individually? Well, I certainly see it as a citizen individually. I mean, we're here in the parliament, and um, uh, I travelled over here uh, using a swipe card to get through the subway and uh, through the, uh, the, the uh, ticket uh, barrier at uh, Queen Street Station, um, and um, got on the train and got out my phone and... Uh, Google searched a few things um, in preparation for this discussion we're having. Um, and uh, when I got to the parliament, uh, there's a fingerprint um, identity swipe, um, which people have to uh, apply. And uh, when I get to my office, it's facial recognition on my laptop to make sure it's me that's opening it up. So, it's all, so it is all around us um, at, at that level. Um, and that's quite visible. I guess the issue for us as elected representatives and more broadly in society is the invisibility of a lot of it and the extent to which data is being collected and uh, how that's going to be applied. And in the end, uh, as an old uh, socialist, I'm also interested in who owns and controls it. And, um, you know, there seems to me to be uh, in this whole area uh, already... Um, a sense that there is quite a concentration of power and uh, it's not necessarily uh, very accessible or uh, particularly democratised. Uh, and so the, th the challenge for elected representatives, I think, is to understand where it is, uh, because I know that uh, with one of Ava's colleagues, uh, we had a Scotland Future seminar uh, in the Parliament uh, just last year where one of the questions that we were set was, uh, you need to find out where AI is being applied in public services in Scotland today. You know, uh, we presume it's um, it's been applied in the police. We presume it's been applied, certainly it's been applied uh, when it comes to things like immigration checks and so on. But where else in, in the public health sphere is it being applied? Where else 
Is it um, is it being used in uh, education? And I guess for me, um, the, the the question, the social and political question, really is: um, is it being applied uh, for social good, or is it, as with a lot of technology in uh, certainly in the past, is it being tried and tested in the military's field, for example? You know, is it being uh, used uh, to meet the needs of the rich rather than uh, the needs of the poor, and you know, in on on whose behalf is it being applied? So I think that they're, they're the broader social, uh, political, economic, uh, class questions actually that uh, that we need to consider as elected representatives, and I think the people as a whole need to consider. And on that final point, do you think people are starting to talk about it more? Broadly now, within within the communities you you work with and 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 socialize with, it it feels to me like this is a, a discussion that's being had more broadly now. Yeah, and I well, I mean, for me, um, uh, because I'm of a certain age, uh, I can go back to the uh, post-industrial uh, utopians like Andre Gors and uh, Alvin Toffler with Future Shock and and uh, Rudolf Barrow in East Germany and so on, who were projecting a different kind of future based on the techno- technological uh, revolutions that were taking place at that time, um, you know, late 70s, early 80s and so on. And we spoke a lot of, at that point about um, automatic unemployment and the collapse of work and so on. Now, it hasn't quite played out that way, but, but the broader point I'm making, Rob, is that uh, these are societal, economic uh, issues that we've been grappling with uh, for as, for all of my adulthood. Uh, at the moment, it, it takes the form of of what are we doing about artificial intelligence? But in you know in in previous um, uh, times, it was very much and still is actually about uh, the robotization of factories and so on. You know, where, when I go and visit factories, whether they are producing whiskey or uh, producing uh, soft drinks. I look down at the bottling halls and the canning departments, and there are very few people there. It's nearly all mechanized and robotized. And, and that now has got the layer of artificial intelligence running right through it as, as, as well. That's interesting. That, that, that harks back to a, a point that was made in one of our events about six years ago by a man called Chris van der Kyle, who was part of the Dundee games industry and, and helped turn Minecraft into the, the kind of global success it is. He was talking about how the professions which we'd previously seen as kind of immune to automation, such as accountancy and the law, um, are going to see lots of the tasks performed in quite high level ones being able to be performed to a certain extent successively by artificial intelligence systems. so it, it it does feel that the the um, yeah the effects could be felt more broadly through different sectors of the economy and and, and parts of life. Now I think I feel we're we're quite naturally going on to the negatives, the potential negatives of this. But there's clearly a reason why people are developing AI. They they see benefits in it. Um, some of them may be more more based on personal gain, but the. the there are some many people who are working from a sort of societal basis and can see beneficial uses for for people through society. David, could you outline the opportunities you see for for AI? I mean, can it? Where can it help us? Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's easy, isn't it, to get trapped in the negative zone because <laughs> most of the debate is around 
well, I suppose the media frames things in critical ways necessarily and we get trapped into that discussion. But um, I think this technology is essentially like a large scale, incredibly fast way of identifying more and more complex patterns in data. So um, imagine this applied to things like understanding of health conditions and the interplay between comorbidities and that kind of thing that would have taken a human being on, you know, on a standard computer far, far longer. And now we can apply artificial intelligence methods and create insights so much faster. And so there are clearly places within which the application of AI, sorry, could uh, can support insights. But I think the main barrier for those being realized for me at the moment is, you know, it's um, the usability side of things. A lot of the innovation, the money around innovation goes on, on the kind of the foundational research and less on the, the applications. And so whilst we're having models that are incredibly powerful, we don't necessarily have the kind of the interfaces that allow people to engage with them in meaningful ways. Um, and actually, one of my students, um, Alistair Simcott, is currently studying algorithmic explainability, and she looks at expert user contexts. And so one of those contexts is clinicians, for example. And she's sort of arguing that um, the design of systems uh, is actually more prohibitive the way they're currently designed than enabling of clinicians. So if a, a clinician will, gets a system that they can't immediately use, that doesn't help them to meaningfully understand a problem and respond to it in a way that allows them to apply their expertise, they'll simply not use it, or potentially they'll over-rely upon it in other contexts. And so we're not at the point yet where these systems are so intuitive in use that they're going to be um, have the kind of impact, positive impact, that they could otherwise have. I think, and usability is critical. You know, that's what make, makes chat GPT such a big deal the barrier to entry is incredibly low anybody can use it potentially if you can if you you know if you have a reasonable level of literacy or you can cut and paste text in there um, you can produce anything you like and that's also where the harms arise because the more something is spread the less regulation and the more open it is to people playing with it and doing what they're like like they like then there's going to be as many bad outcomes as there are good um, I think I'll also say that I think artificial intelligence is, um, or, or some of the, those methods are, are solutions looking for problems, you know, it, it, and so we're sort of trying to find ways that AI can be useful to us. And it seems like a, we perhaps don't think about other things in that way. You know, you create a thing for a purpose. In this case, we're, we're sort of scurrying around trying to find the, the killer app, as they say, right? Um, what's, the, what's the moonshot? Where are we aiming? You know, what is this going to look like in the future? Um, and if we take generative language models, we still don't really understand who's using them for what and for what purposes. And so our responses are highly reactive. Like we're not proactively thinking these models be used in this way. Let's regulate for that. Let's put in place different checks and balances. We're you know, imagining multiple worlds. But in reality, how people use it will be how that system is defined. The same was true of the Internet. You know, it's like it was imagined for one specific type of thing and a particular type of domain. And then it snowballed in a completely different direction and became the, the product, if you like, or the infrastructure that we currently engage with. And the same would be true of AI, as it has been of other technologies in the past. Um, I'm going to give an example, I think, of where it can be good or bad, and that's the use by students, because it's a very hot topic at the moment and very much on my mind. <laughs> um, so, you know, students using it to produce academic work, you know, how do we deal with that? Um, if, if we can't trust the veracity or authenticity of the output, what does it mean, you know, in terms of academic assessment? Do we do oral assessments? You know, they're incredibly expensive and time-consuming. They're prohibitive for some students. They put too much anxiety on people. You know, what are the implications of that for the students, for the institutions, for the way that HE functions in the future? Now, there may be some technical solutions by which we can identify these things. I'm sure some people start working on them, but the speed of innovation outpaces our ability to constrain it f for a lot of the time. And so I suspect that will be the case here. Um, 
I think as new systems are put into the world and new new cases, use cases developed, we'll be able to better answer those questions. Like what is it good for? And there will be something where this will, you know, solve an incredibly difficult problem. But I think we need to get all of our ducks in a row, usability, regulation, user engagement, all of those things need to be in place before that happens. Yeah, I think as many of us will have been introduced at work or elsewhere to IT systems that do incredible things, but not quite the thing that you want them to do. And it does strike me that if you don't have the link with the expert user who has a problem and needs that solved, that AI will be a similar kind of, sure, a, a similar kind of process. Um, well, as the convener of the Public Audit uh, Committee of the Parliament, let me tell you that there have been some uh, fairly spectacular uh, ICT failures uh, with public institutions from the Scottish Pensions Agency through to Police Scotland. So, um, and, uh, and, and I think a lot of that has been about uh, a, an inability to set the right design specification and, and place the right demands in the contract. And so there has been a mismatch between what has been delivered and what was expected. And in some cases, the whole thing has been um, stripped out completely. So there have been some fairly inglorious and expensive failures uh, because of that. So core design is absolutely essential, isn't it? Uh, yeah, and, and to make that successful, is this the sort of thing where we need to improve the skills of the people who are doing the core designing and also change the culture within the AI world or the, the technological side to make it more open to working in a different way to produce something for a purpose rather than to produce something and then find a purpose. I, I think that is happening to some extent as well. I should be a little, perhaps a little more even-handed <laughs> in that uh, there are now pushes, especially by um, uh, UKRI, you know, the research councils in the UK, to for, push forward with multidisciplinary solutions where you have uh, you know, technical people developing systems and solutions, working alongside arts and humanities scholars and the social sciences. And I think that creates a much more holistic picture. Um, I think those kinds of teams are problematic because often you use different language, you use a sort of, you have different expectations of what a system will do. For some people, particularly in the arts and humanities, there are red lines, things that you absolutely shouldn't do. From a technical perspective, they want to see how far their technology will go most often. And so sort of say, well, let us just develop this and then we can decide sort of where it fits. And I think there's this clash of cultures that we need to get past, you know, before, but, but there are moves towards supporting and facilitating that. We do that at the University of Edinburgh. We have lots of multidisciplinary spaces and it does work, you know, well on small scale projects, whether that can be applied to large scale industrial sort of uh, context is another matter. I suppose it's a, a, a different example of where creativity is needed in, in developing cultures and systems that help bring to or three or more different kinds of um, systems and approaches together for a common for a common purpose. Um, I'm sure you'll be looking at them in a few years' time, Richard, as, as part of the public audit committee's yes, absolutely. work. Absolutely. Um, I mean, one of the reasons we're here today is to talk about the, you know, what this means for our democracy that and the building we're sitting in. I mean, in leaving Google recently, Jeffrey Hinton, who has been called by some the godfather of AI, cited fears that chatbots could be exploited by bad actors and authoritarian states. I also read a really interesting quote from the philosopher Yuval Noah Harari, who suggested recently that AI could endanger democracy. He, he said, if I'm having a conversation with someone and I cannot tell whether it's a human or an AI, that's the end of democracy. I mean, that, that feels quite a, uh, a stark sentence to, to, to write. Um, I think his piece ended with, 
this was written by a human or was it? Just to point out the, <laughs> the challenges in it. Um, Ava, what do you think AI means for democracy then? I think that quote is interesting because the idea that um, a text-based artificial intelligence would be able to convince another human being that it was human was always, has always been the goal of artificial intelligence since Turing. That was so we should have seen sort of that coming as a problem. But you know that aside, I think um, I think the chat GPT boom wasn't really expected. You know, and people are scrabbling to make sense of what this means, and it feels as though it's threatening because of the fact that it's a, a kind of system that's doing something far sort of more swiftly, far more intelligently than we expected, and it's so accessible to everybody. It's kind of captured our imagination. And those kinds of systems can generate potentially limitless content at speed and scale, and I think that's one of the threats. Um, so large language models, which is um, more generative language models, which is what ChatGPT is, are still pretty clunky, but they do provide quite plausible responses. Humans still do a better job, but only just barely. It's not always, a, you're not always able to tell who generated that text. And so consequently, you know, the, the, the potential for disinformation and misinformation at scale is massive. Um, you know, you can imagine that a system like this can fill the comments section of any kind of briefing or um, any comment online or anything where you would expect to have some kind of democratic engagement. You could flood it with these kinds of models. And so, you know, citizens get pushed out and whoever it is, whichever the bad actor is that's using these systems, um, they would have, uh, you know, I suppose, complete control in that context and you wouldn't necessarily know it. And I think that's the thing that we should be mindful of is that this is about bad actors and, um, you know, potentially people that want to use this technology for ill. So that the technology itself, I'm not saying it's neutral, that would be a ridiculous statement, absolutely untrue, but it's, you know, there's no, um, there's no harm inherently built in it. This is contextual. And so um, if people are going to use it for negative purposes, there's very little we can do to control that just yet. Regulation is trying to catch up, but it's slow. Um, and things like deep fake video deep fakes, they're the really obvious one, the famous one of Barack Obama, you know, where actually you can't, you can't, you can, it's slightly uncanny, you can sort of tell, but increasingly you just have to go on TikTok or YouTube and you can see videos where you, you really wouldn't be able to tell whether that's the actual person or not. And we are creatures that believe what we want to believe. We read the papers, you know, we're in our little news bubbles, aren't we? Really, I read The Guardian, you know, somebody else might read The Times and if they see something outside of what they're comfortable with, then they tend not to believe it. And they tend to really believe the stuff that they see. If you think that the content you're seeing is from a verifiable source, a source that aligns with your polit political views, then you're gonna probably eat that content up, even if it's false and more likely to believe it. And that's, I think, the, one of the larger problems is the technology can do all kinds of exciting things, but it's also the way it's designed and deployed plays with our sort of um, our psychology to some extent. It plays into our weaknesses and, and that's a big component there as well. Um, and so I think it depends about, you know, deployment, who, who creates it, shapes it, deploys it, I think is um, helps to answer that question of whether it's going to undermine democracy or not. But I think there is definitely the potential. I mean, we've seen examples. Yeah, um, I was going to say it's it's no transparency is a, is a word that comes up often in this, and, and it's whether you know what what's being created as AI or not, or um, and and what that means for how you treat the the material you you come across. Richard, what's your perspective? I mean, are you worried about this or concerned? Well, I mean, <clears throat> if you look at the um, experience of uh, Cambridge Analytica, you know, it's well documented that uh, in the hands of the wrong people, it can be used 
to attempt to influence the outcome of elections and referenda. So I think, you know, I think for politics, this is a very big, big and serious uh, and present issue. Um, I mean, the um, we were in the run-up to the next UK general election and uh, Keir Starmer uh, said recently that he was expecting it to be a dirty campaign. Now, a dirty campaign in uh, 21st century terms uh, is likely to be dirty in this whole field rather than uh, people throwing eggs at John Prescott anymore. So I think there is, I think, widespread concern about the manipulation of data and, and data is king. Uh, in electoral politics and uh, targeting is absolutely where all the political parties are aiming to be uh, in order to uh, persuade the the people that they are um, uh, seeking the votes of uh, to uh, to vote with them so i think the the electoral process as well as the democratic process is right at the center of this and i think we need we need the right safeguards in place uh, to uh, prevent the perversion of uh, the democratic will of the people. Um, in more broad terms, I think it, it goes back to the point I made at the start about the invisibility of a lot of all this and your point, Rob, about transparency being critical. It's about transparency, but also about accountability. And um, I think, I mean, I read, some, I read somewhere recently um, quite a neat, um, I suppose, characterization of... Um, of how things are. It's a guy, Jeff Mulgan, uh, who was an advisor to Tony Blair at one time, but he's a, he's a kind of now in the world of academia. And he, he brought a book out recently called Social Innovation. And I mean, I think what, so what he said was, um, Amazon intermediates our relationship to products. Facebook intermediates our, our friendships and Google intermediates our relationship to information. And when you look at who, you know, Jeff Bezos, Mark Zuckerberg, Larry Page, I mean, that, that's a hell of a concentration of power over some really important areas of our, of our lives. And so I think um, unless uh, we've got the democratic institutions that match the scale of that power and are able to put in place the right safeguards and regulations, you know, I think we're right to be um, wary of uh, the um, spread of artificial intelligence into areas when we don't know that's where, they, where they're spreading. So it's about transparency, accountability, uh, and it's about understanding that, um, as Ava has said, it, it's about making sure the technology is the servant of the people rather than the people being the servant of the technology. And, and those involved knowing that there's technology being used and how it's being used and, and there being a sort of an, uh, an accountability to it, to me, seems seems important from a from a parliamentary perspective, the engagement of, of people in, um, you know, in the, the political process and the, the decisions taken here is clearly key. It's not just a once every four or five years thing that democracy is a, a, a daily event. And obviously the online spaces we use are curated in a way that we don't necessarily think about we don't think that there's a you know when we do a google search that that there our interaction with that is an individual you know an individual one it's not what it, it's not like having a look in a reference book and everybody sees the same um the same entry or a dictionary or that it's it's based on what we've done before and what google thinks we want to do and and 
and and when you take that to as you say the the the, the way the online world is just a, a natural part of um our lives in so many different spheres an understanding of that individual the potential for the uh, the experience being different or shaped by other people in the background and, os really and, important. Ost and ostensibly uh, that looks like it's a free service but the exchange is your data for accessing that search and uh, and again it's i'm not sure whether that's always uh, and every time understood that that's that is the that is the terms of trade that you do when you go on to uh, these various search engines for example and and so obviously the, you've, you've talked about elections and and that part of democracy and 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 the way that you know each political party has its it, you know a, a, a fair right to try and target its message and and you know uh, and and that's been the case for as long as there have been political parties um the work of the parliament um, also encompasses uh, the regulation and the, the holding of um, bodies accountable for, for their decisions. Um, and as, as we record this, we're sitting in the Scottish Parliament, which is the workplace of those charged with serving the people of Scotland, the MSPs, such as yourself, Richard. I mean, Ava, what do you see as the specific challenges for elected representatives in, in their role? Um, as I said, one of our jobs is to hold the government and others de democratically accountable for their actions. Uh, how can we do that when AI is involved? Um, I think it's really difficult and it does come back to the point that we've all raised now around transparency. Um, uh, the fact that most algorithms are not readily inspectable and that's for a number of reasons. I mean, it can be the kinds of models we've talked about, you know, earlier just now, those kind of models, it would be un almost impossible to untangle the logic, even for a subject specialist. But there are also issues around proprietary content, you know, so for example, if I don't know, a large tech company owns an algorithm, the likelihood of them letting you see those operations in order to inspect them is incredibly low. And then the other side, the, the sort of third camp is those people, you know, like me, me, I suppose, to some extent, a lay person who, you know, you understand, you might, and actually, maybe not me, <laughs> a terrible example. There's some random person from who's walking down the street at the moment who maybe did an art history back um, degree or something of that nature, who perhaps hasn't necessarily directly thought about this. If you gave them an algorithm to look at, they'd be like, what is this? Uh, you know, perfectly reasonable. I don't know why I picked on art history there. It could be anybody. It's just the, maybe the least, the furthest point from algorithms. So um, I think there is there are issues there around um, how we how we even get to the point where transparency is sufficiently ubiquitous and meaningful that we can then hold people to account on the basis of what we find. We still don't know that we can find the things we need to, never mind the ongoing governance process that that would then sort of um, trip off. And I think that um, there are so many other issues around this in terms of, um, as I said, I mentioned before, usability as well. You know, we're not we, we talk about these ideas, but we're really not in a position to be able to progress them. You know, the new AI um, Act, you know, the, the European Union sort of um, classifications of systems with regards to harm, you know, the things that you, you can do, the things that require lower levels of regulation. They, um, even though we have that framework, we still couldn't really get to the meat of what we'd need to to find out where the problems occurred, unless it's a very simple algorithm which can be inspected. So... Even when we have the infrastructure, how we deploy that is an open question that people are rushing to be able to solve. So um, I think how you hold then people accountable, you know, that's maybe not 
that's not we're, we're a step before that so it's like once you know that something's bad you can hold people to account but how do we know that something's bad that's the question that we're we're kind of not um not able to answer just now and i wonder if there's also a sort of space for things like um we we met we touched just briefly about citizens you know would it be different would people respond differently to content online if there was some kind of similar model to the food labeling where it's like an ai ai was definitely involved in this ai was involved 50 percent of this content would you look at that content differently if you had that upfront as a marker i think people probably would but you know nobody's rushing to that kind of solution are they because that would mean that then a lot of the models that businesses rely on would fall down so i think some of the solutions are managed by the market and i don't think that's a model necessarily that's going to create the solutions that we want from a democratic perspective it's interesting you talk about having like food food labeling kind of system and and um, takes us back to this transparency people if they know partly if traces of ai <laughs> are involved in this product if 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 they know that a bit of the background to how the thing that they're being presented with be it a a decision on life insurance or a um, or a recommendation for restaurants or something like that you know the wide range of it, it, it I think it would at least change their approach to how how they're how they look at the information they're given, um, and I mean, it's, it's quite a leap. But Richard, one of your roles, as you've mentioned, is as convener of the Public Audit Committee, and and that committee's job is to ensure that public money spent efficiently and effectively. So, where do you see that role going as artificial intelligence and other tools? Um, become more and more commonplace within the work and the spending of money and the decisions taken within within Scotland? Yeah, I mean, so the role of public audit is partly about uh, value for money and where the money's spent and how efficiently it's spent. Uh, but we are also interested in things like governance. And I think this is, you know, th th this is where that whole debate about transparency is absolutely critical. So I think that, I mean, one of the things that um, strikes me is that the Parliament's uh, committees have started to uh, consider quite rightly um, the, uh, the, the, the impact um, of various activities in the public sector on uh, the realization of the net zero carbon target, for example. So that's starting to be built into the dimension of the work of the Education Committee, of the Health Committee, of the Justice Committee, and so on. Um, and I just wonder whether uh, what we shouldn't be doing is also uh, getting those committees of the parliament to start asking questions about the extent to which artificial intelligence is becoming part of uh, what is uh, what we are doing in the health service. To what extent it's part of what's going on in the justice system, for example. You know, because I go back to the point I made at the start, which is I'm not quite sure actually uh, that um, as members of this parliament, we are fully on top of the extent to which um, AI is being used in the delivery of public services and in the uh, the tailoring of public services. Because I think, you know, it, to, to look at this optimistically, that there are some real opportunities to use AI positively to make sure we reach those people uh, who need uh, to be reached by a public service, whether that's uh, people in poverty, whether that's people with particular health conditions, or, or particular educational needs and so on. So I think we need to, you know, we need to look at how it can be used positively. But I think the, the starting point for me, as the convener of the Public Audit Committee, is let's do an audit of what's out there at the moment. 
Uh, so yeah, you, it, before we get any further into it, it's knowing how it's actually being used, and 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 then you can start unpicking what this what this might mean. That ties nightly into a plug I should make actually for a, for a piece of work the Futures Forum did last year um, at the end of last year, which is a toolkit which we produced um, by um, a guy called Robbie Scarf in in conjunction with us, who's a PhD student at Edinburgh with seven questions to help scrutinize the use of it. Now, they're all kind of designed to be both in the, um, to be used as part of the process for decision, uh, part of the decision-making process, but also from a sort of public audit or retrospective point of view. And it, it's covering things like intended goals. And I think the first one's really good. Um, what do you want to do? And will AI, AI help you do that? Because I think often, as you said, we're looking, we've got a solution in search of a, a problem. So if you focus on the problem and, and see if you, you actually need AI as part of the solution. Um, and it's and two of the last questions are on transparency. How will you scrutinize and review the operation and impacts of the system? And if people want to complain, particularly if they feel they suffered harm, how will they do so? And, 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 and I think you're right. If we build in these questions and this approach, It'll be able, it'll help us deal more carefully with a big, scary, potentially scary topic by breaking it down into, um, you know, manageable chunks, and first of all, as you say, seeing where it's actually being used. I mean, beyond Parliament, I mean, it's clear that this is a question for us throughout our lives, our friendships. As you were talking about our friendships, the music we listen to, potentially the the the, the books we read. Um, Ava. Is there, are there things we should be doing to protect ourselves as citizens in our daily lives? Are there things that we need to think about as we go go about our, our normal existence? Hmm. I think um, actually a point that was made earlier about being aware that all of your interactions online generate data, all of your interactions on your phone, pretty much any digital interactions you have create what used to, we used to call a digital fingerprint, effectively a trace of you that can, you know, if you drew all that data together, it would give you a pretty core picture of, of who you are as an individual and probably enable lots of predictions. So being aware of that, I think, is the first point. I'm always uncomfortable with the idea of how do we protect ourselves. The analogue for me is when, you know, something happens, um, you know, to a woman in a public space. And people go, well, how can women protect themselves? Well, they should do this. It's like, really, is that the problem? <laughs> is it that all oh, you should be protecting ourselves? Because it feels to me like that's an inversion of the problem. And um, one of the, the, the things, I suppose, that in the past we've we've maybe focused on that we have, we've lost somehow is the idea of media literacy. So maybe now the kind of the things we should be talking about are AI literacies, whereas before we, we used to focus, I worked in post-16 education many years ago, working with people who had poor prior educational experiences. And one of the things we used to focus on was media literacy so they could be safe online. And we used to say, okay, you know, can you tell this comes from a verifiable source? Do you know where, you know, where did you get this news? Um, is it absolutely definitely news? Is this email from somebody you know? Is, are there misspellings in the email so that you know that it's not, you know, potentially spam or a problematic email? Don't click a link that takes you to an external site. We had all of these different rules and they worked really well in the context when everything was quite constrained, you know, online. But now it's a bit of a Wild West situation, isn't it? And I think we, we need to revise what we think, how we think about what used to be called media literacy. Uh, and people should, you know, make some efforts to find out a little bit about the environment within which they're operating. Although we're all busy, you know, we're all sort of strapped for cash and strapped for time. And and whether this is a priority for most people when they're going about their daily goals is a question, isn't it? So um, I wouldn't like to put too much emphasis on individuals to equip themselves in an environment where the problems aren't readily visible to them. Um, 
That being said, I think one of the things we're losing, um, which helps with some of these things, is funding of shaped subjects, so social sciences, arts, humanities, philosophy, those kinds of things. Um, we're putting a lot of money into STEM, and that's fine, but it then it's producing the problems that we're then desperately trying to find the solutions to that really only those disciplines can help us with. And so if we carry on too far down this route, we're going to find ourselves in a situation where there's nobody left to help us answer these problems. So, you know, it's a little bit of, a, I suppose, a political moment for me because I feel quite strongly about it, but I think it is something that we're seeing trends towards now. And, uh, you know, Who's, who's leading the ethical drive now? It's sort of the philosophers and the people that have been thinking about these things for years and years. And without them, where would we be? Well, you know, if we ask ourselves that in 20 years, we might not have any philosophers to answer the question for us. So um, I think there are a few things that we as society can do um, and in terms of individuals being aware that you're a data subject. And Richard, this is my, my final question uh, for today. Um, uh, where does this conversation leave you? Do, you? do you feel you're hopeful or fearful? or a bit of both? Well, I think there's a danger of being fatalistic about this. And I think um, my own uh, outlook would be that we need to uh, be optimistic, that there are some things that um, are currently out with uh, the scope of democratic accountability, but I'm optimistic that there are ways in which we can make these things accountable. So I think that's both in the public sector and also in the private realm as well. I just think that there is, uh, there is a bit more that we can do as active citizens uh, to, um, uh, to hold some of that power to account and actually uh, see a bit of redistribution of that power as well and, and maybe change the balance of power because um, the, the, that concentration uh, of ownership and therefore power, which I spoke about earlier, speaks to a much wider and longer term question about um, the inequalities and imbalances, not just in wealth and income, but also in power in society and in the economy. And I think, you know, they, they, are, they are simply a reflection of that. And so um, I'm optimistic that we, uh, we can get to grips with those kind of things and we can see uh, the creation of a more equal future uh, where there is greater um, access uh, and opportunity for people, but also uh, that uh, we see a much fairer and more even spread of ownership and control. And I think that would apply uh, to this area that we've been talking about today. But I think it's a much broader uh, societal economic question that we need to address. But um, my own view is that, uh, yeah, I'm optimistic that we can, uh, we can build a future uh, where there is proper accountability and when um, citizens are in, in control of the economy rather than the economy being in control of citizens. So, well, it's nice to always end on a, a, a positive contribution. Um, uh, and that brings us at, to the end of our podcast. I'd like to thank both our expert contributors for their time today, Professor Ava Luger from the University of Edinburgh and Richard Leonard, MSP, convener of the Parliament's Public Audit Committee. I'd also like to thank the Scottish AI Alliance for their support in putting this podcast together. If you want to find out any more about the Futures Forum work on the subject, just put Scotland's Futures Forum into your usual search engine, being aware of the data you're creating, and you should be able to find it, no problem. Uh, thanks to you all for listening, and goodbye.